So a fortnight ago, we looked how Jesus challenges the underlying rhythm, that beat that there is in life. And uh, you may recall we borrowed uh, Jane's metronome. Do you remember this? Remember that? This was really good. And we talked about how... Get this going. Honestly. Quite deciding to do things, isn't it? We talked about how a metronome sets the beat. And that modern musicians will have a click track in their ears so that above the noise of the electric guitars and drums and everything, uh, they, they can hear that click track just going uh, all the time. You can make this go faster. You can make it go slower. And we talked about how in life the reality is many of us perhaps feel that that's about the pace we're quite happy with today. And uh, in this kind of heat that there is in this chapel on a Sunday evening, you know, I can see some of you are thinking, that's so bad. All right. But the reality is it's nothing to do with age because we also said, do you remember that, you know, even if you're getting on a little bit, the reality is that sometimes we find life is considerably quick. There are things all of us have to do and we all get busy. It's nothing to do with age or seasons of life. We long to live life at a so slower beat with a slower rhythm, but in reality, that doesn't always happen. And so we questioned what is it that sets the beat for us? What is it that sets the rhythm of our lives? We started to explore that in a bit more depth, that perhaps Jesus wants to challenge the beat, the rhythm by which we live our lives today. He wants to set a different beat, an alternative rhythm, a beat and a rhythm set no less by his will and expressed through his teaching. And you might remember, because uh, last time we couldn't meet because of the snow, of course. That was interesting how that reset the beat and the rhythm of life. But um, I asked you maybe to go away and to have a look at Matthew chapter 5. And just to look again at that section of Jesus' teaching. Now, you may want to just open your Bible, get your app open or whatever at that little section now. Because in a little while, uh, Ivan's going to come and he's going to read for us from it. But you remember that in the same way that musicians use a metronome to sync themselves up with a given beat, the question for us to consider is, what if we looked at the Beatitudes as that rhythm, as that beat in our lives? What if these were the thing that we kept coming back to again and again, when our lives perhaps get out of sync? When perhaps... We're rushing, 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 rushing and needing to just stop. Or perhaps when we're finding ourselves a little bit too lazy and we need to up the ante a bit. How do we stay on track 
in life. So we're going to take a look at this. Ivan's going to come and he's going to read for us a little section. So come, brother, your second time today, as Sheila has helpfully reminded us. Look at that. If I had my way, you might read next week as well. Praise God. God bless you, brother. Come and read. You have to listen very carefully. God bless you. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show, be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Bless you. Now, the reason I've said to you to listen carefully is because the truth is, that's a very, very familiar passage. And again and again, the problem is that you come to familiar passages of the Bible and you kind of just skip over them, skim, read them. I remember a series of messages that Pastor Tim delivered where, again, we were taken into the Beatitudes. And I think in all honesty, for the first time, I kind of approached the Beatitudes with a fresh set of eyes and started to think seriously about what he was teaching us as we explored that passage together. And there's no doubt, is there, if you, if you did listen carefully, that you'll see that these Beatitudes are different from everyday life. They're different from the normal operating beat and rhythm of our lives, aren't they? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I haven't got that stuff sussed. I've been a Christian a long time. I've been a Christian longer than I haven't been a Christian. But the truth is, I don't always live by that beat, by that rhythm. And, and I guess I, I want to say to you, if you, if you want to say to me, well, Mark, I, I do, th then maybe I might suggest you go home and watch a TV program because what I'm about to say may have very little relevance to you. Because I think that this very familiar passage, familiar as it is, is actually very unfamiliar when it comes to us living out our lives. This is a whole different proposition that Jesus is offering us. This is a very different way of doing life. This is a very different beat. A very different rhythm. Because truth be told, I don't have this stuff sussed. This isn't the beat I always live to. Okay, peacemaker. Fancy yourself as a peacemaker, do you? You ever been a peacemaker? Yeah? Pastors, really good peacemakers. Here's the truth. I like being right. That doesn't always make itself or lend itself to being a peacemaker. Being merciful? What about that? 
Not, not often enough, I've got to be honest. I want people to get what I think they deserve, especially when they've wronged me. Speak to people who cut me up on roundabouts. What about mourning? It's an interesting one. I do everything I can to try and avoid mourning. To avoid pain. Upset. This isn't the beat of my life. Oh, there are times, there are times, yes. But not, not as much as there should be. What about being meek? The temptation to be proud in lots of areas of my life is very real. I'm incredibly humble, but I'm proud of it. <laughs> you see? That's the problem. So if you're a parent, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to be proud of your kids. If you're married, you know what it's like to be proud of your spouse. If you're part of the church, when the church does something right, you know what it's like to be proud of what we did. How much meekness is there in that? Honestly, as we start to line up our lives with the Beatitudes, I think it's going to feel, it's going to feel different. It's going to feel quite mm, offbeat. I guess it's kind of like this. How many of you drive? Can you just put your hand up if you drive? Okay, brilliant, thank you. So driving is an interesting skill. Do you remember when you learnt to drive? Do you remember going out perhaps with a parent, a grandparent, an uncle, a family friend? Or maybe you had professional lessons. Do you remember going through all of that? Yes? Come on now, wake up. Okay? So, learning to drive wasn't, well, for me it wasn't that easy. I stalled seven times at the same set of traffic lights on Fairwood Common in Swansea, if you know Fairwood Common. I stalled seven times. The wonderful thing was that the instructor didn't blink. I took both of my kids out. I'm not saying any more. <laughs> Do you remember what you had to learn? Do you remember they used to say things like, just find the biting point? What on earth is that all about? Find the, can you feel it? Can you feel it? Just find that biting point. Remember before you move away, just check over your, I've got mirrors, will you? Check over your shoulder. And then that mantra. Did you learn the mantra? Mirror, signal, maneuver. We had to pick all of this stuff up. And then as you're going along, what's your speed? What's the speed limit here? Getting the right gear. Can you hear the engine? Yes, I can. It's screeching quite loudly. Keep your distance. Sometimes, when I look back at learning to drive, I think, how did I ever pass? But for all of us who now drive or have driven, you know what it's like. You don't think about it now. You just get in the car. It's second nature. It's like the car's an extension of you. You've figured out the controls. You know what you're doing. 
And that's what happens as you go along long enough. You'd probably drive nowadays without so much as a second thought. That raises its own problems, because so often then we don't do what we should do. But by and large, we don't consciously have to think about what we're meant to be doing. The car, well, we just become at one with the car. And then you change your car. Or you hire a car. Have you done that? You, you change your car, and it may happen when you go out for the test drive, because suddenly it feels very different. The biting point isn't at the same point. The view is obstructed slightly because the pillar is in a slightly different place. The mirror hasn't been adjusted to suit you. You look over your shoulder and, my gosh, the pillar there is wider than the one on my car. You put your foot on the accelerator and there's more power than in your car. You put your foot on the brake and the brakes work. <laughs> it's new to you. It's unfamiliar. When you rent a car, they're very aware of that. It's why they offer you special insurances. Yes. As I found out, I knew you were going to laugh at me about this. As I found out last week, because some of you will know that I've been having problems with my car been in the garage being fixed and the, the garage has been wonderful they've been giving me courtesy cars and I've had some amazing ones one of them made me look like a drug overlord and Tim and I have been cruising around and yeah you know the windows down and you know amazing grace beating out of the windows it's been oh the one they gave me this week is was an Audi A4 Avant which is like an estate car it's got everything on it. It's got parking sensors and things that slow you down if you're too, uh, getting too close to the car in front. Well, I had an accident in it. I know, this is terrible, isn't it? And I've basically done in one side of the car. <gasps> this is terrible. That's why I have insurance, don't worry. If I end up going to court, come and visit me. <laughs> but the car was unusual. The car was different from my car. So when I hit, what happened was I hit a patch of ice with snow banks up on the side and everything. It didn't matter that I wasn't going very fast or anything. The fact that the car was so different to my own, you don't react the same way. That's a very real issue for us when it comes to following Jesus. Trying to adjust the beat of our lives and sinking ourselves to the beat of what he wants can often feel strange. It can feel like somebody's changed the controls of life around us and we have to relearn and adopt a very new rhythm. It's why, isn't it, if you become a Christian, a born-again, life can't be the same. It's different. There's a different beat. There's a different rhythm. 
And let's be honest now tonight. It's at that point, many people start off okay with faith and with Jesus and with this whole Christianity stuff, but oftentimes end up in trouble, end up even giving up. Because reorientating our lives, resetting the beat is blinking difficult. And sticking with that beat and sticking with that rhythm, you know as well as I do, it's hard. Thank God we have the Holy Spirit's help. But still we struggle. So there are times that you reflect on in your life, as I do in mine, where you can say, yeah, I was on beat. I was keeping the rhythm Jesus wanted for me. But at other times, I, I wasn't. And things weren't going the way I knew they should. You might even wonder, well, if it's so hard, why bother? Why bother? I hope you do bother, because I passionately believe that there is a better way to live, that there is actually a better beat and a better rhythm. And we've all been there. We've all asked ourselves at some point in our lives, surely there's got to be more to life than this. We've all lived our lives when the rhythm and the beat has been a particular way and we've ended up, maybe like the guy in the picture, with our head in our hands and thought, please God, this can't carry on. We end up taking up a beat and a rhythm that leads us down a certain tra trajectory. We get involved with people that we shouldn't do. We get into financial difficulty. We end up with practices in our lives that are unhealthy for us. The beat has gone. The rhythm has changed. And then God graciously gets hold of us and brings us back because he wants us to reset our lives by his beat. There is a better rhythm. There is a better beat to live our lives by. And it's about living a life that Jesus has ordained for us. It's about seeking to live a life that is governed by his teaching, the things that he has shown us and exemplified to us. It's about us coming to a table like this tonight and remembering that to set the beat and the rhythm of life for us, Jesus gave his life, laid it down so that everything could start again, everything could be reset. So that's why we're looking together just over these few weeks at Jesus' teaching to see how we can reset the beat of our lives. So if you've got your Bible open, why don't you turn to that passage that Ivan read for us a moment ago from Matthew 5. It's an incredible little section. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you know, each of these Beatitudes starts in the same way. Blessed. Blessed. Jesus is associating the 
positive experience of being blessed with living the way that he's teaching. If we get into the rhythm and the beat that Jesus is offering us, he's saying you will be blessed. You know, don't you, those who studied Latin, uh, the, the word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, and that means blessed. I want to be blessed, don't you? Yes. I want to be blessed. I hope you do. I don't want to go through life mediocre. I want to be blessed. I want life to count for something. But what does that mean? What does being blessed actually look like? We use that word all the time. Somebody sneezes and it's, oh, bless you. And we know that comes from the great plague and all of that sort of stuff. But we say it in common currency. I'm conscious that if somebody does a good turn for me, Christian or not, I'll often say to them, oh, bless you, thank you. We use it with one another in the church all the time. God bless you. As pastors, we're in and out of people's lives, and very often that's the phrase we'll use. God bless you. But what does it mean to be blessed? I think it's more than a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness. You know, nice things happen in life, and I suppose you can say, oh, I feel really blessed. That was a lovely steak and trips I had. Many women today, I suppose, are walking around saying, yes, I'm really blessed. All these flowers and chocolates and bath salts. Why is it that we give women so many personal hygiene things, by the way? Anyway. Blessed, in biblical terms, has far more, far more to do, actually, with a state of well-being in our relationship with God. And it's attained by responding to Jesus' invitation to a new life. But I don't know about you, if being blessed is about a state of well-being in our relationship with God, and if it's attained by responding to Jesus' invitation to new life, then I don't know about you, but as I approach Matthew 5, I'm scratching my head. Because what Jesus says here is absolutely weird. I mean, let's be absolutely honest for a moment. Look at the passage. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, now pardon me, but that doesn't make sense, does it? You're blessed when you're sad? Stay with me a second. We've got to realize the structure of how Jesus is actually delivering these Beatitudes. You notice he, he says things like, blessed are, and then he lists something. And then he goes on to say, for they will. That's the structure Jesus is saying, that the trials and the difficulties and the struggles are not the end of the story. That's not the be-all and end-all of it. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, it's very important you include the next bit. Because he says, for they will be comforted. Isn't that a lovely thing to bear in mind tonight for John and Val, for John's family, for Val and for Philip? They mourn, but the blessed hope that they have is that they will be comforted. 
And for all of us who've lost loved ones, who still grieve and who are still sorrowful, yes, we mourn, but please hold on to that. You will be comforted. This is about getting in step with Jesus. This is about the beat. This is about the rhythm that we need to know. We'll be blessed in our mourning because Jesus will comfort us. He will draw near to us in a way that we have perhaps never before been able to experience. There's a future promise that we need to hold on to. And it's there in each of these statements. You notice that many Beatitudes are coupled with a future promise. They will be, except, of course, the poor in spirit and the persecuted, because for them, the kingdom of heaven is theirs now. It's present. The blessing is real now. That's good, isn't it? That Christians tonight in Syria, that Christians tonight in North Korea, need to know God is with them now. That they can have hope now. That they can know help in their circumstances right now. Let's take a little closer look at two of these Beatitudes briefly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3. Uh, an interesting little Beatitude, poor in spirit. What, what's that all about? The term poor doesn't exactly have a great connotation, does it? Nobody wants to be poor in anything. Think about how much of our lives are driven by an unspoken desire not to end up being poor. That's so true, isn't it? So much of what we do and are about is so that we don't end up being poor. So what does poor in spirit mean? All sorts of definitions given by commentaries and dictionaries to be contentedly poor, willing to be emptied of worldly wealth, if God orders that to be our lot. Mm -hmm. To be humble and lowly in our own eyes. Choosing to not have confidence in our own righteousness and strength. Picks up on Harry's prayer earlier on, that one. That we may depend only on the work of Jesus for our justification and the spirit and grace of Jesus for our sanctification. This is how the message puts it. It's good sometimes to look at different versions. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. This is about recognizing that we are in need of God's help. Jesus says you'll be blessed when you don't get trapped by the love of wealth and possessions. That's totally in keeping with his teaching elsewhere, isn't it? Talking about humility and when you recognize that you can't do it all on your own. This is about recognizing we need Jesus. When that's your attitude, when that's part of the beat that you live your life by, when you are not living a life that says, it's all about me, when you let go of that and you recognize that it's more about Jesus and his kingdom, Jesus says, yeah, that's the right beat. 
when you have less, when you recognize you're not able to do it all by yourself, yeah, that's the rhythm. And very often, let's be honest, when we don't have so much in life, when some of us were younger perhaps and times were more difficult and we didn't have the trappings that we've got around us now, when we were more reliant on God, it was easier. The problem with getting older is that it becomes so easy to get into a nice little rut and to rely on God a lot less. That's our attitude. We need the beat and the rhythm. When you're at the end of your rope, because with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Now turn to another one. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The message puts it this way. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Mourn. When's the last time you mourned? Many people in our Western culture, particularly here in Britain, myself included, have a tendency to stoicism. We don't like to mourn. We try to remove our mournful experiences and cover them with an emotionless endurance. The stiff upper lip is born out of that. We must be brave. Now, it was Mothering Sunday today, so I have tried to do the right thing by my wife all weekend. So yesterday, gents, you'll be proud of me here. In a right way, not a wrong way. I endured the film starring Helen Mirren called The Queen. <laughs> uh, how many of you have seen that film? God bless you. Did you enjoy the film? Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, there we go. It's very interesting, isn't it? As a film. Because the overriding premise running through the film is that Diana is dead and the British public failed to read how the monarch feels she should behave in response to that. They all want her to return to Buckingham Palace, fly her sovereign standard over Buckhouse at half-mast. But she is having to tell cheery Tony Blair but that's just not the way we do it. And we British want decorum and sensibility. I know it's only a drama, but I couldn't help but think about the boys and how her grandchildren felt at the news that their mother had died. We live in a society that struggles with grief with mourning. In some cultures, it's a very public act. They hire in professional mourners to come and wail, to make a song. And it's all right, don't worry, fine. You fell, you okay? You all right? You okay? Uh, they hire people to come in and do it all for them. But in our country, in our country, I remember a time when you would close the curtains. 
Remember that? You would be quiet. You wouldn't say anything. And you would just, well, Queen Victoria wore black for how many years? How do we cope with this? It's a struggle I've had, as many of you will know, since losing both my parents. Something that I am very conscious I do is I tend to suppress my emotions. I don't let them out easily. I was talking to Steve about the struggle that I was having. The sense that having lost both my parents, I was now an orphan. And how on earth was I to cope with that? And he gave me an article, The Unspoken Agony of Being a Midlife Orphan. And I suddenly realized that other people struggled with that sense of being orphaned, having lost both parents when still relatively young. It was good to read about other people's experiences and to know that I wasn't alone. And through that, to begin to discover something of the comfort of God through his people and indeed through my own relationship with him. Jesus' promises, we will be comforted when we mourn. We have to allow that to happen in the midst of our grief and our mourning. We have to allow ourselves to be comforted. It's one thing to actually step into our mourning and grieving, but there's another step that we have to take, and that's to allow God's comfort to enter in as well. But that is so alien in our culture. So alien to a lot of us here tonight. You see, the Beatitudes are different from the normal rhythm, the normal beat, the normal way of doing things. This is radical stuff. Jesus isn't suggesting that these are simply timeless truths about the way the world should be or about uh, utopian uh, human behavior. If he was saying that, I, I tell you now, he was wrong. Because the truth is, mourners often go uncomforted, and the meek don't inherit the earth, and those who long for justice frequently take that longing with them to the grave. What he is doing here is he is turning the world on its head. He is talking about an upside-down world. He's offering kingdom values, a teaching that is about following him and being in relationship with him. It's a right-up world, if you like, by knowing him. Jesus is saying that with his work, this is all starting to become true. As we come to celebrate communion tonight, this is about the reality. A man died for us that we can have life. Shed his blood for us that we can be free from sin, washed clean. It doesn't make sense in many ways. But in Jesus' kingdom, it all is starting to come true. This stuff in the Beatitudes is an announcement not a philosophical analysis of the world. N.T. Wright says, it's about something that's startling 
starting to happen. Not about a general truth of life. It's gospel. It's good news. Not good advice. So my friends, what's the beat? What's the rhythm for you? Where do you need to get back in sync with God tonight? As you come to communion now, as you take bread and drink wine, what is it that you're going to have to lay down? What is it that you're going to have to turn over to God? What is it that you're going to have to say to him, Lord, I need to let go of this and I need to embrace your upside down way of thinking because I need a new rhythm, a new beat. And together, my friends, as the church, we can encourage each other to keep in step, to keep the beat, to keep the rhythm, putting an arm around each other at times and saying, I'm with you. Coming alongside each other sometimes and saying, hey, slow down. And at other times, kicking each other up the backside and saying, come on. Let's go for this as we seek to focus on God's rhythm for life.